Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, August the 30th, 2022. It's lunchtime in San Francisco, and as so often this month and seemingly every month over the few the last few years, Elon Musk is dominating the news. The story today is about the second letter he sent terminating his $44 billion Twitter acquisition. Um, he's treated as an iconic figure, both within, I think, the tech press and networks, uh, publications like The Verge, uh, are leading with this, as well as Fox Business News is one of the few new media figures who I think is as equally embraced by the tech community as by conservative media. Um, he fancies himself as a demographer, maybe he thinks of himself as the 21st century uh, Malthus. He just came out with something suggesting that the population will collapse. Demographers say it's not happening, but it nonetheless gets him a headline on CNN Health. Um, another headline, he's a celebrity. So headlines about the relationship or perhaps lack of relationship he had with another senior tech executive. They conceived of twins using IVF, but they didn't apparently have a romantic relationship, meaning this woman, I suppose, just wanted children with a little bit of uh, musk blood in them. Um, he's a pretty funny guy. He made some jokes today, which got in the headlines about his mother sleeping in the garage. He's a remarkable guy, whether you like him or not. Most of us are ambivalent, I think. Um, when you see his Twitter uh, handle, um, he has 104 million followers, which is astonishing. It's more than Donald Trump's, more than anyone, I think. And he describes himself as Mars and cars, chips and dip. What's interesting about that is uh, cars is only part of it. He doesn't even lead with cars. He leads with Mars, reflecting his SpaceX initiative. Uh, chips, I suppose, deals with technology. I'm not sure what dip deals with. Um, Musk has, however, when you try to make sense of his celebrity, the cult around him, he made his name mostly at Tesla, uh, and there's a really interesting book out. It came out last year. It's published today in paperback, Power Play, Tesla, Elon Musk, and the Bet of the Century. It's written by one of the Wall Street Journal's um, car and tech reporters, uh, Tim Higgins. Tim, congratulations, firstly, on the success of the book. It's a bestseller. It's out now in paperback. Um Thank you. When you were writing this book, I'm guessing that the biggest challenge or one of the biggest challenges uh, was simply avoiding it making a book about uh, Musk. Uh, but when you look at that, um, when you look at uh, the, the, the Musk uh, description of himself on Tesla, should it just say cars? I mean, this is a man who made his name and his fortune through Tesla, didn't he? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um because he started out before Tesla with SpaceX and you talk to people who are close to him and worked with him over the years and they kind of describe SpaceX 
um, as his true love, this idea of going to Mars and going to space. It's almost as if SpaceX is his wife, and they would describe Tesla as his spicy mistress who he just can't quit, right? She's the, Tesla is the drama. Tesla is the exciting thing on the side. And if you were to talk to him, he, he would often talk about, uh, you, you know, he did not think he was going to be in the weeds on Tesla. He thought he was going to be an investor. And, you know, the th problem with Tesla, the problem with creating a car company is that it's super hard and it required a lot more attention than he was expecting. And over time, he just got sucked into all of that and uh, eventually became the CEO and is now really associated with it. Right. So uh, Tesla and SpaceX um, are kind of these two giant things that he's trying to, to balance. Um, and he sees himself as an engineer. So he enjoys kind of getting into the weeds on the car and the manufacturing process. But over time, it's very clear that the kind of the boring parts of running a car company don't interest him so much. The, the HR, the, uh, the sales process, the, the legal issues, this is stuff that he eats. Well, that, 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 Tim, that doesn't make him very different from Jack Dorsey or Steve Jobs. I mean, that's given. Um, you present then uh, almost his taking over as Tesla as accidental. Um, I always thought of Musk as somebody, for better or worse, who manifests agency more than anything else. Are you suggesting that the Tesla story and Musk's involvement with it, in which you narrate in your book, Power Play, isn't really a reflection of agency. It's almost accidental. He became involved like, rather like a mistress, uh, almost against his will or not, if not against his will, um, in, a, in, a, in a fit of forgetfulness. Well, the founding story of Tesla is very messy. Even to this day, even in the last few months, you can see Elon Musk trying to rewrite that founding story. And the founding story really begins with a, a, a different person, a man named Martin Eberhardt, who had been an entrepreneur in Silicon Valley. And Mark Tarpening, they're the, considered, exactly. at least in the media, to be the two founders, Eberhardt and Tarpening. Exactly. Mark was, his, was Martin's friend. And these two had this idea that an electric car company could be a thing. They thought starting with a sports car, making it cool, uh, using lithium-ion batteries, uh, the kind of uh, thing, fat finger cells you would find in camcorders at the time uh, that were kind of proven technology. That they thought this was the path to make electric cars possible because prior to this, I mean, the idea of electric cars go back 100 years. Henry Ford's wife had an electric car, but gasoline-powered vehicles won the day. And even as car companies kind of thought about zero-emission vehicles, thought about electrification of the car company, there was this the continual challenge was uh, the, the, the batteries and the performance and the cost and car companies in the modern era were you know, thinking about electric cars, but we're always kind of looking for the perfect technology. And Martin Eberhardt's kind of his big idea was let's use something that's on the shelf. If they could get enough of that, they would get scale and bring the cost down eventually. And this is the kind of the business plan that he proposed. Well, at that point in time, it seemed like a rather unlikely if not crazy idea, Silicon Valley was not really attuned to investing the kinds of capital needed uh, to create a car company. Uh, the idea of a car company seemed unlikely that maybe it'd become a supplier and then face pricing pressures. It, remember, this is the era of, of Facebook and, and software eating the world. And it, Martin and Mark were having a hard time finding an investor. 
uh, investors at all. And that's how they came across Elon Musk. And here was a guy who had made his really big fortune with uh, PayPal and had decamped to the Los Angeles area. But it wasn't a big fortune in Silicon well, Valley terms, was it, well, Tim? I mean, well, at the time it was. I mean, in today's dollars, no, but it was enough that he didn't mm. have to work again. He could kind of sit on the beach and, and drink daiquiris if he wanted, but he didn't want to do it. And he wanted to. Yeah, he's certainly not that kind of guy. I mean, whether no, or not he wanted to go to Mars. Interest. And and that's what. So he's down there. And he'd gotten, he was always interested in electrification of the car. He was always interested in these sorts of things. And he'd been pursuing a, a side idea to try to get a sports car that he had or what he was going to get and get it converted into an electric vehicle. And he was working with a shop that just happened to be working with Martin and Mark. And, you know, one thing led to another and Martin is down there pitching him and Elon comes on board as the largest investor, uh, really setting the company up and becomes the chairman. And at the time, he's telling people that he's just going to be an investor. What you year know, he, did he become chairman, Tim? 2004 is when this all occurred. Right. And, I remember um, back in 2000 and well, I think about 2007, we had a, a, a RAV4 electric vehicle. So they right. weren't unimaginable. I mean, here's the question that I'm sure everybody asks you. Had uh, Eberhard and Tarpening found a different investor and had, for one reason or other, uh, uh, Musk not got involved, what do you think the chances of what you call the bed of the century uh, succeeding was? It's hard to imagine a Tesla without Elon Musk. Uh, he brought a, 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 something special to it down the road. Um, and one of those things was that ability for risk tolerance and the ability to continually raise the cash that was going to be needed. You mentioned that RAV4, that electric RAV4, and that was actually done in part with Tesla. Uh, and it was part of Elon Musk's kind of, you know, looking for ways to, to electrify uh, the automobile, but also looking for partners out there uh, that he could sell technology to. So yeah, and he... it was a good car. I mean, I, I lived in Berkeley at the time. I used to drive. I could barely get from Berkeley to Silicon Valley. I had to be so careful. It, took, it got me about 80 miles, and it was the only EV out there. And we originally rented it, and mm -hmm. then Toyota gave us the opportunity to buy it. And ironically enough, we bought it, and then we sold it for more than we actually bought it because it became a collector's item. So is this 2007 or 2010? It might have been 2010, right? 2009? Yeah. I mean, we yeah. sold it in 2010. We bought it in 2007. Okay. Or we yeah. at least leased it. Anyway, it, that's mm -hmm. not a Tesla story, but I, I take your point. Yeah. But, but, you know, you're right. There had been this idea of the electrification of the automobile. It was something that was being pursued. And one of the differences here with Tesla was they wanted to start at the high end. Other folks, other companies were saying, they had this idea that people who were going to be interested in an electric car were going to be motivated in part because they wanted to save money on gas. And the, the trade-off to get the price down so it was appealing to that kind of buyer meant that you were giving up a, a lot. You had to make a lot of sacrifices. Your example there, uh, the fear of going you know, distance, range, range anxiety, that's a real issue. Whereas the, the idea of Tesla early days was start at the high end, uh, sports car buyers are accustomed to having cars with quirks because they're buying for something for image and performance. And the electrification of the car really gives you something that's very exciting. That's torque. That's that zero to 60 acceleration off the line. That's a lot of fun. And 
you know, this was kind of the perfect toy in a lot of ways. And that's what well, the, is the real hero then. I mean, obviously, Musk is a hero as the sure. founders are and the engineers that you underline in your book. But is one of the unspoken heroes and doesn't get a lot of credit. Uh, San Fran- the San Francisco buyer, they, the, the people with money. Um, my wife bought an S before it was even reviewed and, and, and splurged <laughs> a lot of money because she simply believed in the thing. There were a lot sure. of people in San Francisco who did that. Sure, absolutely. The California consumer uh, was key in those early days to making Cal- uh, the We can Tesla. take credit then. They get a lot of critique, the tech people, but there should be some credit here. Absolutely. It was, was Tesla was something that was seen as cool and something part of the future. And California uh, regulatory uh, environment was encouraging the development of zero emission vehicles. There was a kind of a perfect uh, soup, if you will, here in, in the state of California that enabled a Tesla to kind of emerge at an important period. That and the uh, Obama administration loans that would come down uh, the road that would help uh, kind of the electrification of the car that were available to other car companies, but Tesla was uh, took advantage of. Those were the kind of things that really helped the early days uh, to get the company going, to get its get its sea legs. Uh, you know, because this was a, you got to think about it. The, the Model S that your wife got, you know, this was a vehicle that was supposed to be $50,000, but really was more like $100,000. And it was unproven technology to a lot of people. They were making yeah, it back. Yeah, she bought it for $90,000. Yeah. Um, and when she bought it, she got a deal where she had unlimited access to recharging. So she doesn't have to pay to recharge it. She could sell it now for probably more than she bought it. Oh, probably in this market. And, you know, so this was people taking, you know, a, a flyer, really. And um, in part but, it because- was, uh, but, but let's give I mean, it's so easy to criticize Musk. Let's give him some credit. I mean, this could have been a dud. It could have been a product, a beta product that just didn't work, that was dangerous, Absolutely. Uh, that it, looked this, bad, that it, was dysfunctional. At the time, Fisker was I mean, out there. Worked. Yeah, the time Fisker was out there and, you know, where's Fisker today? I mean, now there's another incarnation of right. it, but... Uh, the, the thing about and this is where you get back to that question about would there be a Tesla with uh, Elon Musk? And so there, you know, there's in, in my mind, there are several versions of Tesla. There was the founding Tesla with Roadster and Martin Eberhardt. But in order to become a bigger company, to become something grander, it's when Elon Musk takes over at CEO and he kind of marshals the resources, raises the money. And this is where we get kind of Tesla 2.0. And this is where he really is able what to year did set he become up his, CEO, uh, Tim. At the end of 2008. And this is 2008, 2009. He's putting in place a leadership team and vision for that Model S. And the Model S was a simple idea, but very hard to execute. The Model S was going to be the best car out there that just happened to be electric. It was going to show the world that you could have this car and you weren't not going to have any compromises. It was going to have performance and range and uh, an experience. And you would want this instead of a BMW or a Mercedes, he was going after those buyers. And, you know, this was kind of his vision. And the plan was to show that, you know, electric cars could be uh, practical and viable. And then they were going to go down market for the masses. Uh, and, and, that, and, and that's what we've seen. happen. And, and it is in that sense, a remarkable Silicon Valley story of a small company going after a huge industry going after as you say bmw and mercedes the entire german car industry which defines not just uh, an industry but an entire country an entire economy 
Absolutely. I mean, the, these are giants, 100-year giants that have been doing this. They understand how to build vehicles. They understand how to appeal to buyers. And that's why it was hard to raise money at the beginning. This is why, despite the success of the Roadster, despite the success of the Model S, a lot of people were betting against Tesla. That it just the the kind of the common theme and the common kind of critique was, okay, they did this time, but uh, you know, until GM, wait till GM or wait till Mercedes or wait till right. Volkswagen get in the game, then it's going to be real. Well, challenging. that's what we used to say in the '90s about Amazon and Walmart. That's what we said about uh, Google and the New York Times. These things don't happen though. Um, so many people shorted Tesla, you know, from about 2010, 2012 onwards. My understanding is that, and correct me if I'm wrong, Tim, that Musk brought that insane Silicon Valley mentality of essentially sleeping in the office to Tesla. It may have been a nightmare to work at the company, certainly working on the, the shop lines, but that's what made this successful this is what distinguishes just another failed startup from a remarkable success is that fair i think that's a fair thing i mean you know here's here's a kind of an analogy that i like to talk about you know we, we talk about the model s right and yeah. Musk's vision for it being the best car well his promise was that it was going to be a fifty thousand dollar car right but you know it turned out to be like a hundred thousand dollar car and he, he had to put the money cost more you know he was willing to do that in part because he had the ability to raise the money to keep the company going, to get toward that vision. Where did he find the money? I know there's the story that he went to Sergey Brin, uh, who he got a bridge loan from him at one point, and then he went off and, and had an affair with Brin's wife, which probably wasn't a nice way of repaying it. But where did he get most of the money from? Was it traditional VCs? Yeah, well, you know, it started off, a lot of it came out of what the fortune he had. Most of it went into SpaceX and Tesla. And, and then it was, uh, you know, raising money out of the valley, of course. And then, but the key, the, the key thing that happened in 2009 and 2010 was a couple smart moves on his part. He was able to raise uh, funding from uh, Mercedes-Benz parent Daimler at that time. He was able to raise money from the U.S. government, and then he took the company public uh, in two, 2010. Now he, he had to go public in 2010 because the, the, the idea of raising billions of dollars, the kinds of money that was going to be needed for the model S, you know, that time it wasn't it was hundreds of millions of dollars, but that just was not, you know, there was no soft bank fund vision fund out there that doing these mm -hmm. kinds of huge raises that we see, we think are so normal at, at this point in time. So, you know, he got to, he got to, got public and then was able to raise money in, in the public market. And this is where you really see him over the coming years continually stoking uh, enthusiasm in the public market in a way um, that would really frustrate those short sellers, but create a, a loyal legion of people who were seeing that vision of the future of the car that he was, he was selling. And that's where, you know, that's where his real importance for the company um, lies as that ability to set the vision, but then also raise money to get towards that vision. You know, that, you know, a lot of people have big ideas and, and exciting ideas, but raising the money isn't always that easy. Tim, do you think that the reception to the book, everyone loves the books, a bestseller, there's no doubt about that, but the reception of the book sort of feeds into the zeitgeist that Elon Musk is a bad guy. The Los Angeles Times, for example, led with uh, a new deep history of Tesla 
and this is the review of your book, takes the shine off Musk. And everyone has focused on this interaction between Cook and Musk, Tim Cook, the CEO of, of Apple. Uh, they were talking about possibly Apple buying Musk uh, and Tesla. Um, and Musk says, and this is according to your book, Musk is interested, but one condition, I'm CEO. Sure, says Cook. When Apple bought Beats in 2014, it kept its founders, Jimmy Iovine and Dr. Dre. No, Musk said, Apple, Apple CEO. Fuck you, Cook says, and hangs up. I mean, it's a great anecdote, and in, and it's one of the, the most original things in the book. But do you think that people are looking in books like yours for ways to bash Musk? You know, it's interesting. I think there's people see in Musk what they want to see. So there are people out there who don't like him. They don't like that. They don't like his style. They don't like the way he conducts himself. But then there's, you know, a large group of people out there who are inspired by him. They think of him as being authentic and they relish those kinds of anecdotes. So it's, uh, you know, it's a little bit of one of those tests where you look at him and you see what you want to see. It's the um, Rorschach test. I mean, what do you think of him? What's your take? You know, it's interesting. Did you talk to him much for the book? He, uh, you know, I I have talked to him over the years. Um, You know, this is not an authorized book. And in fact, he's called it uh, false and boring and uh, thinks you shouldn't read it. That's quite a credit if you manage to annoy him. And the fact that he read it is is also good. You know, the thing, you know, the issue with this book, I think with him was, I went into it. This, I really didn't want this book to be a, this is not a biography of Elon Musk. It is. Right. He is a character. Well, that's already been done as well. Yeah. Ashley Vance did a very nice job. He did the definitive biography. This is the story of how Tesla came to be. The question I went into when I wrote this was, you know, here's the model three, this compact car that is taking the world by storm. And how did this, you know, how did this unlikely thing occur in, in kind of telling that remarkable story and, and focusing in on, Surely Musk had a big part of it, but also guys like J.B. Straubel, who is considered a founder. Here was a guy who, you know, was kind of really enamored by battery technology and really developed some of the key technology that made Tesla stand out at the beginning. That was the really the breakthroughs in managing those set battery cells in the car, which enabled Tesla to get such a leap ahead of the industry. Um, guys, are, like, are they the real heroes there in the book? Your, the PW uh, uh, review, for example, suggests that the real hero are Tesla's veteran engineers, who I suppose didn't leave, managed to deal with him, and convinced him to listen to them. They are some of the big heroes in the in the in the history of Tesla, without a doubt. I mean, they they did they worked under very difficult conditions. They they became aligned with Elon's vision um, and were able to figure out the impossible things that he wanted to do. Um, and, you know, they was kind of the, you know, one of the things that Elon was very good at in 2009, 2010 period was constructing a team, putting a team together, people that believed yeah. in the, what he wanted and then kind of letting them loose on the world. And in that sense, I mean, he's a lot like, Steve Jobs, isn't he? Horrible to work with, brilliant, vindictive, but also a genius and well, has a vision which, for better or worse, he, he's willing to kill people to realize. You know, it's interesting. I've written a lot about Apple and, you know, people always want to know, is, is Elon Musk the next Steve Jobs? And, you know, I think Bill Gates was asked this question once and he talks about, well, it's, it's you get asked this, but 
you know, when you've known the people there, you can see the differences in them. I, I think one of the big differences between Elon and Steve Jobs was, yes, Steve Jobs could be very hard to work for. He was very demanding. But towards the end of his career, um, you know, he was picking really smart people to do things for him. And yes, he might not always agree, but he would show time and time again the ability to change his mind if he could be convinced. And one of the things we see with Elon at this point is it's very hard to convince him that he's wrong. And, you know, this is this can be a challenge for him. And he's he's burned through a lot of those senior executives that he's brought into Tesla that he has depended upon to make the company. They, they don't last very long there. Now, some of that is that early startup mentality of kind of picking the tool you need at the time and then moving on because you don't have the resources to keep all the tools, if you will. But, uh, you know, the challenge for Tesla now that it's kind of become a real car company is if it's going to become a multi-generational car company, he needs to develop the leadership to be there. So it's not just him sleeping on the factory floor. Yeah, I mean, you, you could make a counter argument, though. I mean, Jobs' greatest achievement was the iPhone. It's clearly had an enormous impact on the world. Um, but perhaps Musk's achievement is even greater. We had Vivek Wadwar, I'm sure you know him. He was on the show recently suggesting that Musk should stop wasting his billions of dollars on Twitter and invest them in curing cancer. Uh, one of his, uh, one of Wadwar's cars is the driver in the driverless car. But Tesla's more than just a car company. It's a solar company. Um, solar roofing, solar seems to be increasingly driving it. So in the long run, Tim, would it be possible to speculate that Tesla's a more important company f- f- for the f- for benefiting the world than than Apple? Hmm, that's an interesting question. You could you could argue that the iPhone unlocked a new world of of interaction, um, whether it's you know Uber or the way we do commerce or the way we communicate. Um, but you you bring up this important point that. People always want to know, what's the future for Elon Musk? Where's Tesla going to be in 100 years or whatever? I can't predict the future, but it's without a doubt that Tesla and Elon Musk's vision for the future of the car has won the day, that the electrification of the car is now considered mainstream. And you've got governments around the world from China and Europe and the U.S. pushing regulatory issues to put customers into electric cars. And you have car companies racing to spend Right. I mean, you only have to look to at Biden's um, bill that was passed last right. week. I mean, it, it 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 puts billions of dollars into electrification, into solar it, they, and, of they, course, electric vehicles. Exactly. So the idea of electric car now, uh, you know, less than 20 years later is no longer this crazy, wild idea. It is con- considered to be the future. Now, there's still a lot of challenges ahead. But that, in a lot of ways, could be the defining thing that Elon is maybe remembered for, how he put his dent into the world. You know, I've written stuff about him, uh, critical. I'm not a big fan, certainly in terms of his sort of embrace, it seems, of a, of a kind of neoliberal corporate world. Uh, lots of headlines these days about Tesla's struggle with unions. What does your book reveal about that, about Musk and and the nature of the company that Tesla would be in terms of workers' rights, um, uh, as well as lots of the lawsuits that have been directed at Tesla? 
Sure. You know, on, on one hand, you have this kind of path that shows how Elon has eaten up the senior executives. Um, but also it's Tesla's a hard has proven to be a hard place to work if you're one of those hourly workers on, on the assembly line. And, you know, one of the interesting kind of anecdotes that I like to focus in on is the Model X uh, sport utility vehicle. Um, this was the vehicle that came after the Model S. Right, and, and it's really, the first version of the Y, which I have now. It's a nice car, but very expensive, right? Very expensive, and it really uh, fell victim to one of the challenges that Elon has is that he just kept wanting more and more and not listening to people around him who were cautioning him that it was kind of getting out of control in a lot of ways. And anyways, it gets to be building this car, and they really didn't think about how it was actually going to be assembled and they were starting to run into a lot of issues at the factory where the workers were getting kind of injured because of repetitive stress, because of repetitive movements, things that typical car companies figured out generations ago to put safety and, and these kinds of steps in place to protect workers. And Tesla just wasn't thinking about that, according to people I was talking to. And you see kind of the, the culture in that factory go from um, you know, these early hires who were excited, they were buying into this vision to, you know, workers feeling like they were kind of bearing the brunt of the erratic nature of Elon Musk. And that's really when you start to see the kind of the efforts to unionize the factory get go into high gear and, you know, more of a combative kind of nature and, and be more challenging um, in there. Now, Elon would what, say- what, what in your view uh, are the politics of, of Musk? Is he essentially a 19th century capitalist who doesn't believe that workers should have rights, should have the right to form unions? Is he the next coming of Carnegie? You know, it's interesting because early on, there are these anecdotes and these stories of Elon being very concerned about the workers. There was a, a worker who was injured. He rushed to the hospital and was very concerned. But as the company got bigger and the stakes got higher, uh, it, it, it's clear that he just can't handle, he can't be at that level uh, anymore. And when he's hearing kind of the union, the UAW trying to you know, organize the factory, you really see him start to take a stance of the us versus them kind of mentality. He would argue that he's paying these people in, with, in, in, in stock options that far out, uh, you know, far out uh, reward workers that compared to the typical car company and that these people are being taken care of and uh, with benefits and, and safety and all of these things. And that it's really the old car making mentality, the unionization that's really kind of trying to be unfair uh, to Tesla. So, you know, this is clearly, um, you know, one of the challenges he, he has in this kind of fight is, you know, he doesn't, doesn't buy into what the unions um, are arguing for. We talked earlier, Tim, about the role of California in all this. Of course, I'm not sure if this happened uh, in the last year since the, the hardback came out, but Tesla has decided to move the company from California to Texas. What does that say about the future of Tesla in corporate terms, as well as Musk himself? Well, you know, it, it's, it dovetails with that union question is that uh, it, at the end of the day, one of the common themes at Tesla was kind of this sense of us versus the world, kind of Tesla versus all these, all these outside forces trying to keep them down. And that the goal kind of, making renewable energy, um, you, you know, bigger and better and out there was so important for the planet that it was worth the fight. It was worth the, sh the, the pain and worth whatever you needed to do to get to that point. And so 
you know, you saw the, the effects on the workers sometimes. And you, you see this kind of battle that occurred in California during the early days of COVID. And this is really where Elon's relationship with California really sours. And that, as you recall, um, you know, there was great efforts in the San Francisco area to shut down, to stop the spread of, of this kind of this new fear, this new threat to society, COVID-19. At that point, it was really unclear, you know, the ramifications, how far this thing would go. And the factory, the Tesla's factories in Fremont, California, across the Bay, uh, it was shut down. It came at a period where Tesla was trying to reach this very dramatic goal of posting four consecutive quarters of profitability. And that was really going to be seen as a game changer for the company and put them on a path where it was going to be you know, easier for uh, big funds out there to, to have to buy, the, buy shares. It was going to just kind of change the kind of dynamic around the company. And a lot was on the line. And Elon was very ultra aggressive in getting the factory, pushing to get that factory open as soon as possible. And he even went down to the factory floor and started work, uh, you know, and basically told the government to come arrest him. Ultimately, there was a detente and they, he was allowed to continue. But this was a, like a huge make or break period. And once you get through that period, he does turn a profit. And the, the response in the marketplace in an investor community was such that, I mean, it was it was like if Tesla could survive this and outperform other automakers, which were shut down elsewhere, um, you know, maybe this vision was that is the future. And they were, Tesla and Elon were rewarded greatly. They were able to go to the market very cheaply, raise a lot of money and solve one of the biggest problems that it had since the beginning of the company. And that was cash, the need for cash. All of a sudden, the company is now turning a profit. And on top of that has a mountain of cash that's there in case it needs for a cyclical downturn and to fuel this kind of growth that it's promising investors over the next, you know, the next few years to get to become the world's largest selling car company, right? So that was a game changer. But along the way, Elon really kind of burned a lot of bridges in California. Anger well, that's uh, excusing the, 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 the inappropriate metaphor, Tim, of burning bridges if you're a car manufacturer. He also revolutionized the industry. When I bought my Model Y last year, it was an astonishingly pleasant experience. It was like going into an Apple store and buying a phone in comparison to going into a, I don't know, an AT&T store. Everyone, all our listeners and viewers have had the, the incredibly unpleasant experience of buying a car retail. To what extent, in your view, has Tesla actually revolutionized the car business itself? Can they ultimately take credit when the last dealership is shut? That car buying experience is one of the other big changes, and that was really pushed by Elon um, himself. Uh, you, you know, the, a lot of people have had bad experiences with those. What do you mean a lot party. of people, Tim? Everybody's had a bad experience. It's one of the worst experiences apart from going to the dentist. It's, it is not a beloved experience by many. The challenge, uh, you know, you had a good experience with Tesla, it sounds like. One of the challenges that Tesla's had, though, is as it's seen this dramatic growth, it hasn't had the 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 resources there to service those vehicles. And that's one of the benefits that traditional car companies have with their dealers out there is the service network. And so over time, that's going to be something Tesla needs to address. But you're right in that 
Elon and Tesla have really changed the idea of the car buying experience here in the U.S. And the, the companies that come, have come after him are following that path. You look at Rivian trying to replicate that kind of idea. And you now look at the traditional car companies and they are trying to change how they can they can do it. But it's tough because they've got there's generations of laws in the states around this country that protect those dark car dealers. So that that's one of the things that he's pioneered and will benefit in the future with. Tim, let's end with a, uh, a remix of, uh, of, of the question I began. I asked you whether Tesla would have been founded without Elon Musk, if it had just been the engineers. But what would have happened if Tesla had been, for example, um, a Japanese car company? I, I did an interview with your Wall Street Journal colleagues, Nick Kostov and Sean McLean, uh, another really interesting book, Boundless, The Rise, Fall and Escape of, Gar of Carlos Ghosn, the Nissan executive who now is essentially uh, a recluse from Japanese and international justice in, um, in, uh, in the Lebanon. Uh, also did a, an interview with two other car journalists, Hans Greimel and William Spazato on Ghosn in the context of the globalized neoliberal order, they have a book called Collision Course. These books should all be, I think, read together, Collision Course and Boundless and your book Power Play. I'm guessing that had, had, um, had Musk tried this play, your power play in Japan, it would have fell flat on his face, wouldn't he? Well, it's... Look at Carlos Ghosn thought he could bring the electric car to the world. It was right. the, and this the was Nissan Leaf. in some ways, and, Tesla, wasn't it? Well, it was around the same time. And then part of it was inspired by the early success of Tesla. But And Carlos Ghosn had these global resources and really did a lot to get the Nissan Leaf out. But it did not, it did not resonate with buyers. And that is something that Elon has really mastered is the ability to uh, you know, understand what buyers want and how to appeal to them and how to get them to buy into that vision of what Tesla is about. You don't have to want necessarily want an electric car to want a Tesla. And that was the insight that Tesla had from early days. So would there be a Tesla without Elon Musk? It's hard to imagine that there would be a, a, the Tesla that we know today without Elon Musk. Had Tesla been founded in Japan, Musk probably would now be a recluse from international justice in the Lebanon or something, having misbehaved. He seems... As, as much of a business genius, he seems an expert in misbehavior. It's a wonderful book and a wonderful story, Tim. Congratulations. Just out in paperback. Power play, Tesla, Elon Musk, and the bet of the century. I think a very fair treatment, neither for or against, deals with Musk and his quote-unquote achievement in all its complexity. What else are you reading these days, um, Tim? I'm guessing you read the... Well, the Boundless... Boundless is on. Uh, I'm working through it now, and it's great. It's a wonder. It's like a spy thriller. And then I've got today. Yeah, arriving. I have both Kostov and McLean on the show. They're both very good. They're very good. I'm, I got coming in today, California Burning by uh, Catherine Blunt. And that's the story of uh, PG&E and their kind of downfall. And it get, gets into that, you know, the biggest uh, wildfire in California state history. So I'm looking forward to that. Having read the excerpt the other day, I think that one's going to be a, a stellar book as well.